0: Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Turing. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Daniel 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom an 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was found in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they couldn't find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days... Save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. What I'd like to do is throw Ruben in here and give us an introduction from Paul's writings to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 3. When Paul writes his letter to the Romans, they are feeling very prideful. Paul even says himself, I am a Roman citizen. And the people that were of Rome thought that they were superior to most of the world, which they were in their day. But he explains something to them. The bad part, he's explaining why things are in Romans 3, what we call the depravity of man. Romans 3.9 says, What then? Are we better than they? We have to make sure that we don't come across that way when we're dealing with the world. We don't want to come across as holier than thou. We don't want to come across as self-righteous. That just is a big turn-off to the faith, and so Paul is answering the question, are "We better than they? No, and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin, as it is written." And he goes into this next few sentences that he writes, which is just astonishing the way that this indictment is given to all of us. Now, we don't think that we're included as an indictment, but we are. Everyone here, every single person here, is included in the things that are listed here as far as the indictment goes. And sometimes. As we grow older and we see things that happen in life, we realize, ah, yeah, yeah, this is coming more true. Because people that we think that are good, we find out, well, they're maybe not quite as good as we thought. So he says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. The reader would say, well, wait a minute. I know a few good people. If you watch Andy Griffith, clearly... There are a few good people on Andy Griffith, maybe. But Paul is saying, "Oh, actually, truthfully, there is none righteous. No, not one. He says, there is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And then he gets descriptive by saying the innards of humanity, in verse 13 he says, their throat is an open sepulchre. So the picture there is of a rotting corpse, the stench of a grave, that the stone may be leaking or seeping, fumes of a rotting corpse. And he is saying, well, this is what our throat is like. We are so filthy that their throat is an open grave, an open sepulcher. The stench, their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps, snakes, poisons under our lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Fifteen is incredibly important when we're dealing with Daniel 6. Their feet are swift, to shed blood, quick to knife someone. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the ways of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What Paul does is he's setting here before us because there are two thoughts here, because the reader clearly, like we, are thinking, that's not really how I see it, at least in our country. For the most part, this isn't the way that we see it. There's a lot of very, very good people. I just recently watched an event at the presidency. President Trump brought people up to the White House to give them a medal of honor because they stood in harm's way to try to save people during the shooting at Walmart. These people didn't receive any money. They weren't paid. They weren't security guards. They were just average people who knew that if they didn't do something, that it would have been a horrible bloodbath. These were good people. And all of us can attribute, I know good people. We all know good people. I mean, I know people that will give the shirt off their back. So do you. So do we all. We all know there are some really, really good people. Some of us actually sitting in this room, a couple. (laughs) Just just a couple. (laughs) But what he is saying here, what Paul is saying is, this is a very potential rot that is within us all. The potential that is in us, even though we may be good and look good and act good, smell good, speak good. The potential down deep within ourselves to do this rotten behavior within all of us is a very rancid rot. A strong tendency to do wrong. We're bent. We think we're inclined to do wrong. Yet we see people that genuinely care for other human beings, people who give and do goodwill, philanthropy people are very generous and helping other people so we see these two ideas clash in together and we realize that actually there's been this tremendous fall but at the end of the day human beings were still made in god's image so there's this goodness that arises in us but then down deep within us too there is this horror that is side by side so you can see in the same newscast people who have been absolutely heroic and yet people who have been serial killers Still humans. There's this ultimate struggle that is taking place in humanity. And Paul is saying this is what's taking place within all of us. And so when we come back to Daniel 6, what we see is this play out. When you go through Daniel 6, it's almost reminiscent of another narrative of Daniel. It sounds almost very, very, very similar to when the three were thrown into the fiery furnace. It's a repetition. And the way that Daniel, the book, is structured, it's done this on purpose. This is the last reminder, because the next coming chapters are going to be extraordinarily difficult. There's a lot of imagery. We're going to talk about the man of sin, the Antichrist himself. We're going to talk about vicious horns and powers and rams and fighting, and it's going to become very vicious. So what's happening here is Daniel, the Lord, the author, the God himself, is taking us out on the diving board in this chapter. Before we jump into the depth... Let's just repeat one more time of what humanity is like. Just to remind us, because we're heading towards the end of time, and then it's going to get a whole lot worse. When we start in Daniel 6... We have already transferred now through history. We've left Babylon, the Babylonian time, and now we're into the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. We have a new king that's on the throne. It's probably a duel maybe with Darius and Cyrus together because of the Medes and the Persians. So we have here in verse 1, it says to begin here, "...it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom an hundred and twenty princes, which should be over the whole kingdom." Now... What he is saying here is there's going to be a Senate before it was a full monarchy. And so what we do is we look back just to compare to chapter 5, verse 18. He's trying to make a contrast. 5.18 talks about Babylon. O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom of majesty. Now when you hear the word majesty, it's supposed to strike an element of fear in you. If the king doesn't lower the scepter, you're dead. It's dangerous to be in the courts of the king of majesty. That's why Jesus told the story that the person that came into the wedding feast, came into the court, you don't have the right clothes on. Don't you know how dangerous that this is? So when you see the word majesty, it should strike an element of absolute power. He says he gave to Nebuchadnezzar, his father, majesty and glory and honor. Verse 19, and for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages, trembled and feared before him. Here's the sovereignty. Whom he would, he slew anybody who, of his choosing. And whom he would keep alive, he kept alive. And whom he would, he set up. And whom he would, he put down, crushing but now what we're seeing is is the statue of the first vision. The vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the dream, the first, the head was that of gold. And that was the best, the premium form of government, absolute majesty, a monarch of full sovereignty. Now we are down into the silver. We are seeing the declension of the mode of government. We're no longer whoever we want to set up, we set up in full monarch. Now we have a senate. We have 120 princes over the realm. And then within this, we're going to have a few oligarchs. The three elites, a few very rich, powerful people who have a lot of pull, they will be over the Senate. And so in verse 2, over these three presidents of whom Daniel was first. Now that's very peculiar, isn't it? We have a transfer of kingdoms. We have a full takeover, one kingdom to the next. Somehow, some way, the total opposite takes place we know what happens when the kingdom is taken over. The empire rolls in with the herd of the army. They kill just about everybody in sight and especially the royal seed. Every one of the king, his children, his great-grandchildren, his children are all dead. Somehow, some way, Daniel goes from power in the Babylonian empire to power immediately in the Persian empire. That's crazy. That is saying something either about Daniel or God's specific dealing. But he says that he has these three presidents that they might give account unto them, the princes, to the three, and that the king should have no damage. Why? Because he's saying it's weakness. There's corruption. So the king... He wants to have the oligarchs underneath him so when the corruption comes and the danger comes, nobody gets mad at the king. They get mad at the presidents. That's why we have deacons. (laughs) See, you can't get mad at me. You can get mad at them. (laughs) See, it's all uh, wisdom is what it is. So, So three, Daniel, though, somehow was preferred above all these presidents and princes. It says, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Now you have to think, Daniel is in his upper 80s by now. He has switched his governmental position, has transferred from one kingdom to the other, which is astonishing. He is a godly, wise man, but he's also a man of very much wealth. You don't become the second in power of a whole kingdom. He hasn't been doing this because of benevolence. Daniel's been paid. I mean, he started out as a slave, as a young boy in the courts, a eunuch. But through the years, he has become and risen to the top. And if you rise to the top, I mean, even Belshazzar says, well, if you give me the dream and the interpretation, I'm putting a gold chain about your neck. I'm giving you purple to wear, the finest of clothing. They doused him with money and gifts, as he did, as he was the most trustworthy person in the entire kingdom. He's second in command. And so now we have to realize, not only is he godly and wise and can interpret dreams, He's incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful. Now, being that he is godly, he is like Job. One of the greatest traits that they said about Job as far as his greatness was because Job was also similar in the gate of the city where all the politics takes place. But the best thing that they said about Job was is in the gate, he was incredibly generous to the poor. Daniel here. And all of his wealth and all of his power is preferred above everybody in the kingdom. Everybody likes him. I mean, he's a jovial guy. He's not stoic. He's enjoying life. He's in the upper years of his life and he's enjoying himself. He is out doing the king's business. He is incredibly wealthy. He has made friends now. He's entering into the golden years of his life. He has lived, even though in captivity, he's entered into the joyous years of his life. People love the guy. The king loves him. Everybody loves him, it seems, until verse 4. Because then, after they realize these three presidents, two specifically, because Daniel's one of the three, after the king thinks to put him, Daniel, above the whole kingdom, then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel. We know why. Greed. Envy. But still I mean this is a good guy. So they find occasion, they look for something we're going to accuse him of. That's why the Satan is called the accuser of the brethren to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. He's absolutely stellar. They cannot find any skeletons in his closet. He has done no corrupt deed. I mean, this guy is just absolutely stellar. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Okay. Then what we see is, again, in a repetition, just as the fiery furnace, we see the wiles of the devil. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said, Thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors, the princes, the counselors, the captains, have all consulted together in unity to establish a royal statute. Oh, and you can see this, can't you, with the king? He's like, Oh. Tell me. Tell me what this could be. Because remember, Satan is over the politics. What is Satan's major issue? His pride. So let's schmooze the king. This is nothing new. We've gone over this and over this and over this and over this. And Daniel, we're on the diving board and we're about to jump in. But before we jump into the nitty gritty, let's just be reminded of the basics. Pride is a horrible thing. So let's make this royal statute, and King, and let's make it a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days except you, O King, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O King, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not, can't change it, Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. He falls right into the trap. Okay. So, Daniel, he finds out. Of course, he's one of the main men, but he's never around when these cahoots take place. So, finally, Daniel, verse 10, knew that the writing was signed. And look what he does. He went into his house, and his windows being open in this chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneels down upon his knees. Three times a day in praise and gave thanks before his God as he did before time. Now, you think to yourself, okay, Daniel, there's a decree that you're not allowed to do this just for 30 days. It's only 30 days. It ain't like it's forever. It's just 30 days. So, how about I understand you don't, you don't want to compromise, you don't want to do these things. That's fine. Well, how about you just shut your windows? Why do you got to do it three times a week? I mean, it's like the kids, the Miniman. You know, you hear them. Did you pray before you ate? Yes. I did it with my eyes open. Oh, okay. Well, I did too. Now, there's something happening here because we're putting things together. Remember the timeline. So if we were to go over just a few pages to your right in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Daniel studies the Word of God. Daniel 9, it says in the first year. Now, you have to remember the timeline here because now the book of Daniel is about to get out of chronological order. So Daniel chapter 9, he says in the first year, of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, Daniel, understood by books... The number of the years where of the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So Daniel is reminded, somebody slips, because now remember, Daniel's a wealthy guy. He's an ambassador for the king. He has full global reign. And what happens is, is there's a prophet in Jerusalem who's been in prison, who's been writing down a book named Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes some information and he's reminded, the captivity is only 70 years. After the 70 years are up, that's it. They're free. Daniel has received a copy of Jeremiah's book. He is studying the Word of God. And he has come across the first year. you got to remember last week's sermon, the timeline. They were in their 69th year, ending it, heading right towards the 70th year when Belshazzar is taken, when the Persians entered into the kingdom. I mean, the timeline that God is giving us is right down to the knuckle. Now Daniel has read Jeremiah and has found out in confirmation there's only supposed to be 70 years of captivity. And then what would be the next step? Naturally, we're going home. We get to go home. He hasn't been home since probably 8 years old, 9 years old, 10, 12. And we don't know exactly how old it was, but it was 70 years ago. He hasn't seen the homeland. I mean, he hasn't been 70 years. Now he knows. We get to go home. So I'm opening my windows. And I'm looking towards the homeland through all three of my windows, getting down on my knees because we get to go home. If you realize the truth of the homeland, it'll change you. You have to realize we have a kingdom coming. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. We really are just travelers here. And if it soaks in, and there's a decree made that you're not allowed to point towards or pray towards the homeland by facing death of the lions, let them come. Now, he didn't do it just to spite them. That's why it says in the end of verse 10, as he did aforetime, he's been doing this for a little while now because he knows we're ready. Then 11, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying, just as they thought, making supplications before his God. Verse 12 through 13, they do a dastardly betrayal of him. And you think, wait a minute, everybody likes him. Everybody does. I mean, he, there's no we find, we looked for occasion for fault against the guy. We couldn't find any. He doesn't do anything wrong. He's not corrupt. He's generous with everything. He helps everybody out. He gives the shirt off of his back. We can't find a thing wrong with him. This is just a stellar guy. How in the world could you do this to him? I mean, he's honorable. He's likable. He's, he, we know he's totally innocent. They trumped up the charges. It isn't as if they didn't know. They know that he is totally innocent. He's an elderly man, and yet somehow, somewhere, You guys are going to go through with having him brutally eaten alive by a lion, by many lions. The anguish of having him lowered down into the lion's den, knowing he's going to be ripped alive. He's going to have chunks of him taken out of him physically, similar to that of Jesus Christ. And even though an innocent man, just like Jesus Christ... How can someone do this? Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in him, but yet I'll scourge him and then bring him out. How can this be? How can you be so bad? It's Romans chapter 3. They are that bad. And we are that bad. That's why we're dealing in Hebrews. We need a high priest who feels our infirmity and has compassion on those that are out of the way and those that have sinned. Because we have sinned. And it's worse that we have sinned. It's we are sinful. So yeah, maybe you haven't committed the sin, but we are sinful. That explains how they could do this to this particular guy. Not only that, is it within them to do it, we are in politics where Satan's seat is. So you put the two together with what we are wanting inside to do, and then being tempted by the devil to do it, it becomes black. It becomes absolutely vicious. To the point of, let's take one of our good friends and have him eaten alive. Then you see the good part of the king. Look at verse 14. You see this struggle take place. Verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself. Now, before the difference was Nebuchadnezzar was upset at the boys for doing what they did. He was upset with everybody else. Now this king, he's a little more righteous. He's upset, not with everybody else. He's upset with himself. You ever do that? You know to do right. You knew it. But you didn't. And then you get upset with yourself. He's upset with himself. Look at it. And set his heart on Daniel. He knows this is the best guy that I got. There ain't a bad bone in this guy. So it sets in his heart to deliver him. And it says, And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. But wait a minute. You say, wait wait a minute. You're the king. You can do anything you want. You are the king. We've gone from gold to silver. You don't have full sovereignty. Or do you? Can you fix it? Because if you can, you should. That's Christians, brothers. If we can fix problems for people, we should. That's what our job is. That's how they become salty. See, you see, you can't just go up to them with your Bible and be like, "Man, you just get saved you down route sinner, you uncircumcised Philistine. You ought to trust in Christ and you ought to believe and you ought to do this and you ought to do that. And thou shalt, and thou shalt not. And bless God, you ought to do this." And you... that's not how this works. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They cannot believe. They have no thirst. And so how do you make them thirst? You give them salt. You can't force a horse to drink water and feed him salt. You're the king. Why don't you do it? Why don't you just fix the problem? Don't, don't sit there and well. I prayed about it. I labored and said till the sun going down. I, I did, you know. But verse 15: These men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, No, king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establishes may be changed. Just letting you know, king, that's Satan himself whispering in his ears. You can't do anything about it. And you can almost hear a cackle behind it. Verse 16, Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel, and cast him into the lion's den. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And you hope so. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lord's that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. It's Romans 3. It's just Romans 3. We're standing on a diving board. We're realizing this is a bad situation. It's bad. Why is it bad? Because we're bad. Humans are bad. We have the good part about us too. But down deep when push comes to shove, I mean, if we get Satan on our trail, you're bad. You look good, you look good, you look good, you look good, you look good until you hear one word of of the devil and it's, I'm bad. Verse 18, then the king went to his palace and he passed. Look at this. He passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought. Oh, So what? You didn't celebrate. You didn't have the boombox going. No music brought before him and his sleep went from him. It should. Again, think. Do something. You're the king. But he can't. Again, that's Romans. Paul says to the unconverted, you're slaves to sin. Slaves. You can't stop. You can't do it. And he's up all night. No music. None of this. I'm so bothered by this. And all you got to do is take your scepter out. And if you had a little bit of wisdom, just write a new decree. I know the law of the Medes and the Persians, that cannot be changed. But you can write a new decree. God has given them the way out, but we just choose not to take it. Verse 19, Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God is thy God, whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions. Then you hear this voice from way down there echoing in the cavern. Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel, and hath shut the lions' mouths, that they have not hurt me. Forasmuch as before him innocency was found in him, and also before thee, O king, have I done thee no hurt? I never did anything wrong. Then was the king exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. I would like to stop here and say that's how it works. But we know better than that, don't we? Sometimes it does. and Sometimes it don't. But God is still good. In 80 years, none of us will be here. Not one. Maybe not even any of the kids. Literally, in 80 years, every single person in this building will be gone. And then all of us who have clung to Jesus Christ as our Savior can say, The lion has done us no hurt. O oh, king, live forever. Then the king gives the commandment, 24. He brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the lion's den. Them, their children, and their wives. That ain't right. Their wives didn't do anything wrong. Their children didn't do anything wrong either. That ain't right. Verse 25, Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you, I make a decree. Yeah, a little late. Don't you think? It's a little late for another decree. But I make one anyway. Here's the decree. That in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. That's not right either. That's not right. It's not right to throw people in lions' down, even though they did something wrong. It ain't right. And it's not right to make a decree to do this. You can't make a decree. Washington cannot make a decree or a law or a statute to make us... You cannot legislate righteousness because our heart is so bad. That's what's the glory of the final of the statue. The everlasting kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. He gives us a new heart. He gives us new blood. He gives us new bodies, total transformation. We are so corrupt that at the end, at this kingdom coming, we will receive new bodies completely transformed out of the sin and into righteousness. It's glorious. And it's coming to all of us who believe. That is if you believe. And that's where we'll stop if you believe. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.